welcome to episode 25 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria and your host. If you'd like more information about the game, go to hazardgaming.com. And for information about the podcast as well as show notes and other episodes, go to pennyredpodcast.com. This week inside the Roleplay Studio, I have Hamish Cameron, an old friend of mine, although I'm not an old friend of his apparently as he doesn't remember who I am. So much like other guests, he'll be meeting me for the first time. Hamish is a doctoral student in classics, which he assures me consists of watching Life of Brian repeatedly. And from a role-playing standpoint, Hamish is currently working on an apocalypse world hack called The Sprawl, which will appeal to cyberpunk fans, as well as a board game about pirates called Conquering Corsairs, which you can read about at conqueringcorsairs.com. But for those playing at home, Hamish assures me that Google search will bring up no other results, so there's a challenge for you. So without further ado, hi there, Hamish. How's it going? Hi, it's going great. How are you? Good. I'm, I'm doing uh, just fine. It's been a bit of a busy day, a busy weekend, lots of uh, construction on my deck and the pouring rain, So, um, but no mm-hmm. electrical fatalities, so that's, a, that's always a plus. Always a plus, yeah. So for the benefit of those that uh, don't know your credentials here, Hamish, how long have you been a role player? Um, ooh, uh, about 25 years, actually. Um, I think I started when I was about 10. Right. So in late eighties. Right, and uh, what did you play first, and uh, and how did you get started? Uh, I was at a uh, party at my grandparents' house in the Capity Coast, uh, just a bit northwest of Wellington, and uh, I was the only kid of my age there, except for one other boy who was maybe a couple of years older than me, and he had fighting fantasy books. And I spent the entire party in my grandparents' uh, caravan reading one of his fighting fantasy books. I think it was Freeway Fighter, like number four or something, which to this day I still have not finished. Uh, and that was the only time Freeway Fighter. No, four was, uh, four was Starship Traveler. Freeway Fighter. I think Freeway Fighter might be number... One was... Um, one was the Warlock of Firetop Mountain. Two is Citadel of Chaos. Yep. Three is Forest yep. of Doom. Four is Starship yep. Traveler. Five is City of Thieves. Six is Death Trap Dungeon. Seven mm-hmm. is... Uh, seven is... Uh, oh, um, uh, Island of the Lizard King. Eight <laughs> is um, Scorpion Swamp, which interestingly is written by Steve Jackson. But... Not the uh, same Steve Jackson that wrote Warlock of Firetop Mountain. Interestingly, I think the first piece of work done by Steve Jackson of Steve Jackson Games, or at least that I was aware of, was he actually wrote uh, Scorpion Swamp. So even though the name on the cover, Steve Jackson, was the same as the Steve Jackson that uh-huh. had sort of got it started with Ian Livingston, it's different Steve Jackson. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, that threw me for ages when I first discovered Steve Jackson games. I was like, oh, wow, the guy who wrote Fighting Fantasy has a game company. That's awesome. And then later I discovered the truth. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> and nine, <laughs> I think I, nine, go ahead. Do you remember nine? Uh, no, but I think I'm confusing Freeway Fighter with four because four is the other that I haven't finished Starship Traveler or Starship. Yeah, yeah Starship, Starship Traveler, um, I'm pretty, and, pretty sure, yeah. Yeah, and that one I don't think I finished because it was really hard. I seem to remember trying my best to finish that and failing, whereas Freeway Fighter I just haven't seen again since I was was that old. So I really should try and dig up another copy of that. Yeah, well, when I was in New Zealand two years ago, I went on to trade me to try and track down all my old fighting fantasy books, and I managed to get one through ten 
but I didn't get number nine, and that's why I'm having a bit of trouble remembering mm. uh, the number. Which one was number nine? I'm sure somebody in the audience is yelling it right now. So if you yell a little, <laughs> if you yell a little louder, my microphone's pretty sensitive. Maybe I'll be able to pick it up. Um, and ten was mm. House of Hell, um, which I found interesting because House of Hell um, was the was the only one that I can think of that was contemporary. Right, because Freeway mm. Freeway Fighter was a post-apocalyptic future. Starship yep. Traveler was like far future, but all the other ones that I'm aware of, at least, were um, all the other ones were sort of quasi-medieval, sort of fantasy type settings. Hence the name Finding Fantasy. Um, but yeah, I can't, I cannot remember that. So that's the why House of Hell always stood out for me because mm. before I'd read the Finding Fantasy, I read uh, Choose Your Own Adventure, and I did the. Um, I did uh, Mystery of Chimney Rock was the was the first one that I got. I got it in a a, um, a Lucky Book Club grab bag. Do you remember those? The Lucky Book Clubs coming around to school, like they were like newsprint. Yeah, that does sound familiar, but I don't know if I ever got them. Um, yeah, wow, that's a blast from the past. <laughs> it's nice to be able. It's nice to have some common ground with a uh, with a. Um, a fellow gamer from New Zealand who's approximately the same age as well. I think that, that uh, makes it because even some of the references that I make are a little bit too, um, a little bit too old for even Farrell and uh, David episode um, eight and nine respectively. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so you played um, those funny fancy books, and then how did you get into the uh, to um, like role playing, role playing? Yeah, well, the day I, I was like, the greatest thing ever. So I got my grandmother to drive to Wellington and bought some fantasy books, and one of them was the first the first role-playing game fighting fantasy book. Right. Um, you yep. know, the one with the orange cover with the Tiger Man on the front? That's right, yep, yep. Uh, which, and I, I note with pleasure that the new re-release of Advanced Fighting Fantasy, that same adventure that was in that book is the sample adventure in the in that new, right. the new re-release version. Oh, cool. Uh, so I bought that, and I, when I got back to, this was on the summer holidays, when I got back to school, I rustled up a few players and um, started playing Fighting Fantasy. And nice. I was pretty soon hacking it into my own kind of version, and I made my own little role-playing game, which is essentially just like a blatant rip-off of Fighting Fantasy with a few different things that I, I wanted to change. Sure. Um, it was only a couple of years later, I guess, that I actually played D&D, and we only played it for one session and got... And then gave it up and went back to fighting fantasy, oh, which right? I played until I got to high school. So, how did, did you work any magic into there, or even at that stage, were you more interested in the character development and, and so on and so forth? Or was it mostly running around killing stuff? I think it was mostly running around killing stuff. I mostly made big maps, big wilderness maps, actually, and I'd put little numbers all over them for where the encounters were, and I'd have a big key that had all the all the different. Um, the monsters that were at those locations and all what right. treasure was there, that kind of thing. It was much more like a kind of uh, tabletop version of Neverwinter Nights or Diablo or something like that than it was right. a... <laughs> yeah, a well, that's the thing. Like See, I play now. I'm, uh, I'm more... I'm, I'm interested in the indie game um, movement and I like the... Um, and I like the whole character development aspect of it and the interrelations between the players. But that's one of the things that the indie games lack is that... Back in those days, when you were doing fighting fantasy and uh, you know, Dungeons and Dragons and that type of stuff, it was uh, a game all to itself, really. Making up cool characters, you could do that by yourself, and you could make up dungeons all by yourself and populate it with animals and and so on and so forth. And that was actually kind of 
well, at least I found that fun in itself. But with the indie games, although it makes for better role-playing at the time because, you know, you play off each other, it's not the sort of thing you can really do by yourself, right? Yeah, yeah, the so-called lonely fun, I guess. Um, yeah, and I really like that. I guess for me, at an early stage, uh, most of the the fun of gaming was the world-building and all of the tinkering of the mechanics was really just, like, tinkering to try and make the experience of showing the players around this world that I'd created um, to make it better. That dishwasher is actually coming through at, at the moment. Quite, like I've, 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 picked, I've picked it up there, so I don't know if it's got louder okay. or... It sounds quite uh, insistent, yeah. actually. Yeah, I'll get you to must more. deal with the dishes right now! Alright, there we go. Weird. Um, what was it doing? I mean, it's just weird that we'll just keep on beeping like that. Strange. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a dumb dishwasher. It, it had just finished the cycle, so... All right. Um, so you played Fighting Fantasy and then Dungeons and & Dragons and then quickly abandoned that and went back to uh, Fighting Fantasy. And then after that, uh, what did you play? Um, we did play the original Doctor Who role-playing game. I don't know if we actually played it uh, so much as we got it, we made up, Somebody made up a character, at least. Right. We looked at the, the box set. Huge swathes, swathes of numbers and various stats and things on the character sheet, and we yeah, kind of put that back in the box, I think. Right. Um, and then I started playing AD&D Second Edition at high school. Uh, and I came across a bunch of people who would later become some of my closest friends who were playing, yeah, Temple of Elemental Evil, the original one. Right. But with, uh, but with AD&D Second Edition in the library at school. Right. And I was sort of sat down, and they were suspicious, and I because I was a year older than they thought I, would, they were, I was there to hassle them or something. Right. Um, I was like, this looks really cool. Can I play? And uh, they agreed, and the rest is probably about twenty odd years of gaming history <laughs> between right. us. Right. And so you played um, Doctor Who Mayfair games. Doctor Who was it? Or um, was it something Street? Uh, no, it's not Mayfair oh. Games, sorry. Um, uh, what's it called? West End Games, Doctor Who. Yeah, that was a West End Games one. And I, don't, I, I definitely have vivid memories of looking at the box set, but I don't remember if we actually played it. Oh, we, oh No, I think we did play it. I think we played one session of it and then uh, decided to go back to hitting things with swords. Um, right. Yeah. So at high school you had you were advanced Dungeons and Dragons and then uh, once then did you play advanced Dungeons and Dragons all the way through high school or uh, more or less yeah we also played a lot of Shadowrun um, and I got the BattleTech box set that it came out in nineteen ninety nine one that was uh, so and we. Also dabbled with Cyberpunk twenty twenty, but mostly it was Shadowrun and Second Edition AD and D. Yes, and that's the one other fact that I think I recall about you is that did, did you used to have a backpack chock full of uh, Shadowrun books? Uh, I almost certainly. Um, yeah, I, I heard that on some of your previous podcasts. And yes. I was like, I don't remember if I really played, if I really took all my stuff with me, and when I went to uh, Fugsock meetings. Yeah, um, I don't because I remember. I, te- I seem to remember a, a tall, thinnish chap with a large backpack full of um, 
full of cyberpunk books. And like you guys, oh, I say you guys because I'm already putting my mind lumping you in there. The Shadowrun guys used to like <laughs> all have a just a big backpack jam full of books that the zip was straining to contain. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know for sure if uh, if you're involved in that uh, group, but you can perhaps. Uh, do you remember who else used to play Shadowrun? Yeah, just... There was another group that used to play, uh, and I think that might be the group you're thinking of. Oh, well, like I... they, had, they had trench coats as well. I don't remember you being a trench coat chap, although you, you may have had one. I don't know. I never... Uh, I mean, I, I kind of did, but... I mean, really. you can't, you can't well, kind of have a trench coat. <laughs> you can't kind well, of have a trench coat. It wasn't a very good one. I wasn't very happy with the quality of my trench coat. <laughs> <laughs> the op shop had them in short supply that day. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it was always really hard to find them in the off shop, actually. Yes. There were so many people that wanted them, maybe. That's right, yeah. <laughs> and I'm always interested to know whether the trench coat, um, the trench coat fad started. I'm, my suspicions are it was from Highlander, but I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, it was Highlander. I mean, trench coats and katanas, and they, all, they all go together in my mind anyway. Trench coats, katanas, two Uzis. That's right, yeah. 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 The whole uh, the whole Um. That, and after that point, I think once I got to university and started playing a few more games, that's when I really started to be the kind of gamer who plays anything they can get their hands on. So right. at that point, I would I would not really be able to characterize what kind of what specific games I played. I guess I played. I remember playing Pendragon. I really liked that. I played one session of Amber. That was very cool. Yes. And did you um, play any World of Darkness? Because that was that was right around the World of Darkness time. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Um, I played. I used to play Vampire. Fair enough. That was cool. Um, I never really liked Werewolf. I don't know why. I think. I think at the time I thought the Werewolf was all about hitting things, and I was like, I've done that. I played AD and D, so why do I want to play Werewolf? Right. I'll play Vampire because then I'd be cool and badass and brooding, and and yes. we can role play about emotions. But it's really just superheroes with fangs at that point, or it was for us anyway. Yes. And uh, and then what? Um. Yeah, that's a good question. I think at a certain point, um, I, and it was probably just about when I was thinking about uh, moving to the states to do my PhD, I started to listen to podcasts because I had I was doing a few jobs that required zero brain power, so I just wanted something going in my ears, um, and I came across a podcast that were talking about these indie games, and this would have been, oh, like two thousand and three, two thousand and four, so it was then. Like, Sorcerer had come and not gone, but it, it wasn't, like, right at the cutting edge, I guess. Um, sure. And so I started to get interested in those and, and about some of the awesome gaming experience people had with that sort of game. And then, and then I, yeah, got into those um, as soon as I could and played a whole lot more when I came over to California. And uh, and that's probably where I'm at. Just kind of, yeah. So how did you get involved? That's right. And then, and then I was just uh, and so then so how did you get involved with the gamers in um, in North America? Because that's a for somebody who is older, um, and I don't mean like a middle aged type. I mean somebody who is uh, you know not is not growing up with the people that they're now going to role play with. You know, you, there are only certain avenues for um, role playing, and it strikes me that. Um, those types of hangouts, you know, like uh, like gaming shops and things like that, are not really the type of place that you would meet um, somebody somebody like minded um, in terms of the level of maturity 
and the type of games you're looking for because people at that age tend to have their close groups of friends and they don't, um, aside from conventions, don't really um, mix outside that uh, outside that group because you know they know the people they like with. We're sort of into geek social fallacy territory here. You don't want to get yourself mm-hmm. into, um, into you know you, because you have responsibilities like jobs and kids and wives and husbands and stuff like that. You um, you're very protective of that time. So generally, you uh, you keep your group small and, and close and and people who are known quantities, right? So oftentimes it's hard to meet up with people of a similar age and or mindset because they don't tend to frequent the uh, role playing shops. They don't have a lot of disposable time, sort of just sort of hanging out. Seems to be destination shopping in and out, that type of thing. Yeah, I've never really met anyone that I've played with at a gaming shop, actually. Right. Um, and that's such a kind of stereotypical uh, way to meet, especially in the um, American scene, it seems. Sure. I uh, I was lucky enough that the grad program I applied for had a couple of uh, board gamers in it, and they had role played in the past, so. I was to get them back into role-playing a little bit. But most of the gaming that I do now when I'm in California, it's uh, people that I met through conventions. And I'd go to the convention, and I ended up playing in the same games with the same people, and eventually we became friends. And next time they set up a game that I was interested in playing in, um, I think it was actually the promise of Apocalypse World, which didn't end up happening for another year or so. But we played a couple of other games in the meantime, and that was really fun. So I just now... And now they're some of my best friends in, in L.A. because I started, yeah, met them at conventions, started gaming with them, started gaming with them outside of conventions, and then, yeah, that's right. That's just the way it went. Right. So you made friends at uh, conventions, and then uh, eventually those friends at conventions became regular um, became regular friends and transformed into, yeah. uh, transformed into regular games. So, yeah, I guess yep. uh, if there's any moral to that piece of the story, it's um, when you're at conventions, keep an eye out for people from the same area and if you're a you know if you're somebody who's I wouldn't go so far as to say old but certainly older um, certainly not a teenager in your 20s and so forth then local conventions are probably the a really good place to start in terms of getting together with with like-minded people because those 20-somethings 30-somethings will actually attend conventions um, so they get some gaming because one uh, it's close but two also if they're new to the area they probably haven't been able to find a role-playing group and uh, get involved in it. Um, but then three, all that stuff may be irrelevant because you can always go online and check this stuff out. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. Um, I also think that um, there's a couple of other things I did. Well, one other thing, I guess, which is as soon as I find out that I'm going somewhere, I usually get on RPGNet or some other forum, and I'm like, I'm going to blah, 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 blah. Uh, is there any gamers around by nearby who want to meet up or something? And, you know, just have a beer with people and talk, talk gaming or have a coffee or whatever. Um and sometimes if you're there at a, at a con, you can, you can if there happens to be a con on at the same time, you can go to that, meet some new people. Um, it's a good... It, cons are a good way of auditioning gamers as well. If you're like, okay, this is a cool game that I want to play. I don't know if I want to play with these people. Let's see what they are like. And you might mm. find that, oh, this group is really good. Or, wow, this group really isn't into the same sort of thing that I'm into, so maybe I won't play with these guys. Yeah, because it's quite a commitment, isn't it? Because once you agree to... Because I've, I've mentioned that before... Like when you get into that situation where you know, like you're, you're, um, you're somebody asks you what role playing is, you know, you're kind of like, if I give a detailed description, I'm going to get into the situation where I have to ask this person if they want to play, and if I get into that situation, mm-hmm. do I actually want this person to uh, want this person to play in my uh, in my group? And it's all 
equipped to kick people out of a group. It's like, oh, it's, yeah. it's not that much of a commitment, actually. It shouldn't be that big a deal. But if it's like, I guess people can take it quite personally. If Because it's, it's usually just a matter of, well, we don't want to be doing the same kind of gaming, so let's not do the same kind of I mean, we can still be friends. <laughs> it's not you. It's not you. It's me. But we can still be friends. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> a role-playing breakup. I've never. Uh, right. I've never experienced a role-playing breakup before. I wonder what that's like to be on the receiving end of. You must be completely bemused. Like, are we breaking yeah, I've never, up? Uh, <laughs> I've never been on the receiving end of it. Uh, but I have asked a couple of people to leave groups. It's just like, dude, you're not playing the same kind of game that we want to play. So. And sometimes I'm happy to hang out with those people on other occasions and play board games. Play some other kind of different game. There's certainly plenty of people that I would play D and D with that I would not play. I don't know. Um, Fiasco. Uh, or with, or so. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. Just because they want different kinds of games, and that's cool. Sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, if that's if that's sort of a mutual, um, if there ever is, is any such thing as a mutual breakup, then that uh, mm-hmm. then that's uh, that's ideal, yeah. I guess. But I've never. Uh, I've never been in a situation where I've had to break up with somebody in uh, somebody in role playing. There's only ever been sort of one person that I've ever wanted to vote out of a, a role playing game, and fortunately, it wasn't my job. But um, I used to play with a chap by the name of Michael. Do you remember Mike? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's definitely. Um, anyway, so um, Michael Blank um, is probably somebody that we've, that we've got in we've got in common, right? And it just was not a was not a good fit for the game we were playing and I didn't have to actually do the breaking up there. But, um, but yeah, that, uh, that type of, the type of situation, like eventually he, I mean, just his thing was that he wanted to do different, like you say, did different, get different things from a game. I'm not sure what would be the Mm -hmm. right game for him. I think advanced Dungeons and Dragons would be the right, would be the right game perhaps. But, um, but yeah, I've never had to actually broach a, a breakup. Like, how do you do it? Do you do it after a session before a new session, do you do it by email? What's the what's the etiquette for breaking up with somebody in your uh, role playing group? Oh, uh, I do it at a time unrelated to the session. Like I wouldn't. Like, okay, we just played a game. Hey, dude, get out! <laughs> or, you know, in a, but in a nice way. <laughs> well, no, I just no, was wondering if there's ever been a sort of like a like a like an explosive point, explosive point in the in the game where it's kind of like, look, you're being a dick. This is not fun for anybody. We're not going to play anymore. And when I say we, I mean you. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think, no, I'm, I'm not that kind of person who would do that. I would just stew on it for a little bit, but I would confront them up game. Like I wouldn't want to make a scene and a bit of ruin the game if that was happening. I and I'd want to make sure that everybody else agreed with me. It wasn't me right. and I was misreading everybody else or something like that. That's right. They might say, um, so I would do, it, I would do it between games. Right. But never, never pleasant, probably. Uh, so mostly right now you're playing uh, Apocalypse World or Apocalypse World Hacks? Yeah. Um, and there's a bunch of other games that I'm kind of reading or, or want to play, but those, yeah, that seems to be my, my playing at the moment. All right. And now that people have got a pretty good idea where you're, uh, where you're coming from um, and where you're at right now, uh, let's get on with, the, uh, with the, the sort of meat and potatoes of the, of the interview. Uh, what's your favourite mm-hmm. book or uh, supplement other than uh, the one that I wrote, of course, and this hack that you're working on? Yeah, um, well, it's half of those, obviously. Um, that's, a, oh, that's a good question. I would probably have... Oh, 
I think now you've got me thinking about uh, about the good old days. I'm, I'm going to have to go with Pendragon, and I don't know which edition, but I there were a lot of really cool things in that game, and I think it was one of the games that first introduced me to the idea that personality could have mechanics. Right. And which so, is something I'm really into now. Right, right. And so um, we talked a little bit before about uh, World of Darkness, and did you ever, like, read or play Wraith? No, I own a copy, um, which I, which a friend was giving away, and I was like, well, it has a glow-in-the-dark cover. That's pretty cool. I love, I love that. But no, I never I never played it. I would like to play that sometime, I think, the uh, the shadow mechanic. Or that's it, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, well, it is the shadow. That's right, yeah, and that's the reason that I brought it up, because um, what I'm hoping is to get somebody on the show who played Wraith back in the day and who now plays these indie games that's got a lot of you know character-driven, um, character-driven plot, because... Uh, with the shadow, really requires a um, with the shadow it really requires a lot of trust between players, and mm-hmm. with the shad- with you know indie games, I'm wondering if now that sort of prepped people for you know the the possibilities of that sort of collaborative storytelling, and whether that idea of the shadow was actually sort of an idea that was ahead of its time. And whether you know whether that's something that people have been able to then take and you know go back and play again and, and see it for something, or whether it's actually just not not the same thing at all. Yeah, I should next time I'm down at my parents. Actually, I should go into my closet and see if I can dig that out because I'd I'd be quite interested to see what the how well it's supported in the rules as well. Like what sort of advice it gives you for that kind of thing. That mm. might be really eliminating as well. Yeah, I'd definitely like to hear from somebody who's done that as well and has that comparative basis. Yeah, because my, my feeling is that it was just ahead of its time. I was 15 years or 20 years almost yeah. ahead of its time, that, that sort of idea. But, um, but yeah, so still another swing and a miss on the, uh, on the Wraith front. Sooner or, la- sooner or later I'll find somebody that actually got that to, uh, got that to work and can give us an idea. So um, on the flip side of that, if you could cause one game or supplement to cease to exist, what would it be? It doesn't necessarily mean that you think it's badly written. It could just be because it's wronged you in some random way or it came along at a, a time in your life when something unpleasant was happening and consequently, you know, you always make that association. Mm. Yeah, I don't... This is this is probably the question, actually, that from listening to your other podcasts, I, I actually thought about beforehand. And even with that, thinking about it, beforehand I couldn't really come up with anything um, I'm just not really the kind of person who who like I don't know there's, there's games for like if, if a game works for someone then then great there's, there's games that I certainly won't play um, and maybe I always like cringe a little bit inside when I see some really cool idea that somebody is doing with say hero system right. um, but I I mean, if, if those people are having fun with your system, then great. Oh, it's um, not a judgment call against. <laughs> yeah, but if, if you if you don't like it, it doesn't necessarily have to mean that nobody else is allowed to. I just it just yeah. mean that you were. I mean, causing it to cease to exist, of course, um, means that nobody else can play it anymore. But it's more from a standpoint of you know you wish you'd never had anything to do with it, and you can be selfish about it. You know, forgetting about the fact that other people enjoy. Yeah, it. yeah. I just don't. I don't really feel that way about any games. I think. I think. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of games around there that have contributed to other people's experiences and that have then contributed to experiences that I've had maybe because they've made games or run games that have been informed in some way by these other things. Um, so, I no, I've never really had a game that I was like, 
Of course, now as soon as as soon as this interview is over, I'm gonna I'm gonna think of one. Oh, um, I wish I'd but, said. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but no, I, I, I'm I'm drawing a blank on that. Um, yeah. So, you uh, like everything? You've been you've been very um, egalitarian, very a very big picture. No, I don't. I don't like everything. Um, I just don't. I don't know. There's, there's, I don't strongly dislike anything. I guess. Right, so you're like on that, um, on the, those little bubble things you have to fill out. Do you like agree, strongly agree, disagree, that type of thing? You, no, nothing's going all the way in the five or whichever way around it is. Yeah, yeah, I'm usually in the middle or I'm the, the annoying guy who writes the, that does not respond to a given question or whatever and then, then writes some comment at the end of the questionnaire about how the questionnaire didn't let me express my <laughs> true lack of feeling for things. <laughs> nice, yes, that's, uh, yeah, yeah, I would enjoy, that would just go straight in the bin, I think, if I was responsible for that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. so, I'm very critical of questionnaires. It's, oh, yeah, yeah, I think that uh, there's a certain psychology in all of them that's uh, that's fundamentally flawed. But, but anyway, because, I mean, you're never going to get somebody filling in a questionnaire that's enjoying filling it. I mean, I can't think of anybody that goes, I really hope there's a questionnaire after this after this presentation. I really hope there is. I can't wait. I can't wait to see what well, it looks like. Actually, I do kind of like them. I just am critical of things that I do in them. I, I don't know. I always like, I'm always analyzing them. I'm always like, okay, so what are the... What are they? What are they testing here when they asking me whether this picture is blue or red? What are they trying to get at? Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that can be a problem. Um, yeah, like you meta gaming, meta gaming the um, meta gaming yeah. the questionnaire. <laughs> wow, <laughs> exactly. you must be you must really have enjoyed that presentation. Uh, so, <laughs> so are there any games or supplements that you're looking forward to that are coming out? Um, I guess. I mean, it's kind of. I guess it's kind of where, well, I don't know. I want to say Dungeon World just because I've been looking, because the Kickstarter is on there and I've been kind of immersed in that a little bit. Um, but that's something that I, like I've already, I have the current version and people can play it. And I've been playing it for a while. Um, so something actually new. Um, I'm kind of interested to, interested to see what that, um, that uh, oh, what's it called? Um that Wild West meets Far East game that um, oh, I can't remember the guy who's working on it, uh, but I think that's going to be out at, at Gen Con maybe. Right. A kind of uh, Kung Fu Western, which is something that I I had an idea of doing a game for a while ago, and then I mean, yeah, I, I didn't. And this guy did, so fantastic. Now I want to see it because <laughs> I love Kung Fu movies and I love Westerns. So. Right. Yeah, okay, well, it sounds like a, a perfect, a perfect marriage there for uh, for yeah. a chap such as yourself. So, yeah. if you could only be a player or a GM, which would you choose? I would be a GM. Yep, definitely. Yeah, people tend to be categorical. Well, most people tend to be categorical about that. Why is that? Um, I think it's because of that initial. Uh, because we're right back when I started playing the game, all the lonely fun I had with. Um, making up worlds, so I just like making up worlds. And even now when I play games when, where I generally try and uh, send most of that authority back to the players and have them make up a lot of the world as we go, I still like to then play in the world that they've sort of made up for me and put constraints on. Uh, I really like the, the kind of creative exercises of the GM, not limited by a single character sheet. 
Right, and I know that uh, a lot of the people that uh, you you game with or that you that you know in, in gaming circles are, uh, are females, and I've been trying to get to the bottom of the question of why it is that approximately one in three, one in four-ish role players are females, but why is it that a disproportionate number of them are not GMs? Like, why is it that women, like a, a woman role player, is is pretty unusual, but a woman GM role player is hmm. is like particularly unusual what do you have any theories about why it is that that for the most part women um are much less um much less evenly represented than men in terms of, of game mastering or storytelling or whatever you want to call it yeah no i'm not sure about that um I, whenever i have a friend who is interested or who, who talks about maybe wanting to gm i always encourage them to do it because i think it's like a learned skill and the more that you do it the better you become and the easier it is so you might as well start now mm. um and when i think back actually there are probably i probably am saying that more to women than i are to men mm. so but i hadn't I, I guess i didn't realize that until i just did a bit of a mental tally in my head um i'm not really sure why that is uh probably something to do with the the kind of um i don't know the dominance of, of men in the hobby, uh, right. statistically yes. and probably culturally as well. Yes. And that maybe there's extra barriers of entry there that, um, to women. Yes. Um, Some previous guests have, yeah. have said that same thing, that there's, you know, that you don't want to get into a, a, a situation where, because ultimately, I guess, if you've, depending on the type of player that you, that you have, you don't want to get involved in a, in a power struggle when you're a female GM, right? Because some... Um, I mean, not that, that women don't necessarily deal with, with power struggles well, but there are, amongst all sectors of the community, and gaming is certainly not immune to it, where men are intolerant of women in, position of, in a position of power, and that's not something that men have to contend with when they decide to you know, get behind, the, get behind mm-hmm. the GM screen. Is that sort of what you're getting at? Yeah, I think there's probably a lot more kind of uncomfortable baggage that goes with it for women that I am not party to, and most men are not party to because they don't see it. But, but if you are a woman who is running a game, then maybe it's, yeah, there's more, you probably get more kind of pushback of, of that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I, I will have to ask some of my female friends about that, actually. Mm. It was an interesting question. Yeah, so um, when you are a GM, what sort of preparation do you do? <laughs> as little as possible. Um, I, I mean, one of the reasons that I really like uh, games like Apocalypse World at the moment is that I can, uh, one of the principles is to turn questions back on the on the players so I can, with a good knowledge of genre and a very basic outline, like a page at the absolute most, like an A4 printed page at the absolute most, mm-hmm. um, I can run like a really good game from that. Just yes. based on kind of genre knowledge and using the ideas that the player's given, um, and because I'm doing, like I'm writing a dissertation, and I have all these other projects going on and, and that kind of thing, I often don't have time to put a lot of prep into games. So mm. I want to play games, and I choose games that I think I can run with with very little prep. And the more prep a game takes, the less likely I am to want to play it. Right. But you mentioned something which I think is crucial. If you're the type of person or type of GM that enjoys those collaborative storytelling experiences, then um, absolutely that minimizes the amount of preparation that you have to do because in some respects preparation 
of a very specific nature is anathema to the whole idea of the collaborative storytelling experience. If you go ahead and plot everything out, then you know you're um, then you're sort of sort of chopping the legs out from under some of the mechanics of the of the game itself. So you really you really can't. Um, but an important thing I think that you mentioned is that um, often people say, "Well, I don't do any preparation at all." But I think the crucial piece of not doing a lot of preparation is really not specific preparation because you mentioned genre. You need to have a good mm-hmm. grip of the genre that you're you're running a game in order to be able to tap into some of those tropes, perhaps that you know your players share with you, or you know if you're because your your specialty area is the classics. So, for example, classic sorry, um, classic history. If you're going to um, run a game in, say, I'm not sure which particular branch of it it is, but let's just say Rome, like ancient Rome, then the fact that you you know, your area of expertise is ancient Rome means that you can bring a lot to that setting, even though none of it is specific preparation for what the characters are going to do. And I think that that's probably, you know, the most useful tool in the arsenal of a GM is to is to know your setting, right? I, I think so. Um, and actually, there's a little bit of a paradox there because I have never run a game based on ancient history or classics. Um, and I probably I would be very reluctant to, specifically because it's kind of like what I do, and I'm much more attached to what, I mean, and this is not really the right term, what the truth is or what the reality of the situation is. So as soon as it started getting collaborative and people started having ideas that I didn't think were accurate enough, I'd, I'd probably sort of get a little bit, like, it would, it would stop working for me. Right. Um, so there's a lot of kind of ancient history games that I'm vaguely interested in, but I'm always wary of playing them. Right. Um, but, yeah, the general principle still applies. Like, I've watched, I've played a lot of D&D. I know what the fantasy tropes are. I can kind of run a D&D game just off the drop of a hat. If some friends came around now, I could do it. Right. Um, and similarly for other genres like sci-fi or post-apocalyptic, if I've seen a lot, then I could just go with that. If right. it was something weirder, then I wouldn't be able to. And that would be where different amounts of prep would come in, I guess. Right. So you're scared that your settings lawyer would break loose if people started trying to play a, a game in ancient Rome? Yeah. Um, I I often run games that are in some way thematically based on um, my work. Right. But so, so I ran like a fantasy live game up, um, a few years ago, several years ago now, um, that was very loosely based on like early tribal structures of Rome. Right. But I filed all the serial numbers off, so nobody was going to think it was a classics game. Right. Uh, and it was much more of a kind of barbarians against the Empire kind of game. Right. Um, and who, were, and who, were your, who were your players and who were the good guys? Because this is another idea that, I've, that I've, I've talked about before, is that oftentimes the idea of who's the good guy is based purely upon who it is that's writing the, uh, writing the history, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. The winners write the history. Um yeah, I like to um, I like to kind of switch it up, um, and I do. I, I often like to you know, try the same game from different angles. It can be fun, right? Um, and and if the serial numbers are sufficiently filed, then nobody would even know about me, which is fine because uh, yeah, what's well, going to be fun to have my, GM, my right? private fun. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. 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 Yeah, have you actually done that, like, almost blueprint style where you've actually got the... you've actually had the players play against themselves or the actions that their their characters actually took but in opposition to themselves in the past? Um, I've never done it with the same group. 
Right. But I feel like I've run con games that were essentially the same for different groups of people, but were from different angles. Right. And how does yeah. that work out? Because that's an idea that I sort of I've been knocking around trying to figure out a way to to get that to uh, to to happen. Because I like this idea of you know you're only the good guys because that's the that's the prism of the of the story. But if mm-hmm. we tell a story from a different angle, then you guys should be the bad guys. I'm trying to figure out a way that I could that I could go about doing that. It would either take a very mature group of role players who are completely capable of divorcing their previous actions of their characters that are in opposition to their current characters um, in order to carry it off, right? Yeah. Um, if it was the same group of players, that would that would be a really interesting. Um, really interesting thing to try. I would definitely want to make sure that they were all on the same page with me at the start. That they that was all that they all knew that that was what we were doing. Yes, and yeah. then we would we would see how it went. Right. Um, there's a there's a game called Microscope which I just uh, have played recently, which is pretty cool. It's about making um, you kind of set out the start and end points of the history, and then as a group you fill in everything between, and nobody has a character. Uh, whenever you play a scene, everybody picks a new character, so you can end up playing the same. You might have the same four characters in a scene, but being played by completely different people. Right. So that could be an interesting paradigm for doing something like that, right. where everybody was kind of looking at a big top-down view of the world, and then we're just like, okay, well, how about this time I'll play the, mm. the diplomat and you play the, the whatever. Right. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think there's room for uh, for digging into that for sure. So, yeah. what's the perfect number to role play? Um, for you. I. I don't know the perfect. I always set my games at four maximum, which in practice means certainly I do most of my gaming at cons these days, right. uh, and which in practice means that I get four players in all my games, which I think is the maximum I'd want. Because right. um, four players, you can get give everybody enough attention, everybody can do enough stuff, um, and it means that if somebody's not there, you can go down to three, and that's cool. Uh, I've never really. I played one. I ran one game that was two players, and that was really cool as well. But that would be that would be the range, like two to two to four, anywhere in there, is what right. I want. And any more than that, and it, I just I don't really have time for bigger games than that these days. Right. If if I want it to be a role playing experience rather than a social experience, anyway. Yes. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I think that simulation games lend themselves more to more players, but paradoxically, um, a simulation game with more players. So much time is spent on even one combat that it may yeah, that may mm-hmm. be all that you that, that you get to do, um, but you know it's all about the strategy, right? But yeah, do you fi- how did you find uh, playing with two players? Because I ran a I ran a buddy cop um, game for two players, and I found that the amount of time that I like it was a much more um, intense um, experience. I don't necessarily mean that it was you know plumbing all kinds of emotional depths. I just meant intense for me as a game master because I found that with three people you know with that dynamic there's much less pressure on you as the GM but when you get down to two you're on the whole time yeah I often find that even with four players I'm on the whole time with with kind of um, with Apocalypse World variants anyway because the GM is is kind of present in most roles because anytime you roll a seven to nine then the GM has to come up with something so you it can be quite a well, yeah. You're using a lot of your energy, and whether that's draining or not depends on the type of person you are. Right. Um, but with two players, I it was it was a two player game where they were it was a far future thing 
and they were kind of investigating something, and it was sort of collaborative world, and as they build up things, I, I kind of wove together a kind of a behind-the-scenes intrigue plot. Right. And then, so they spent a lot of time thinking and talking amongst themselves about the plot, which took a lot of time pressure off me in that, in that way, that right. if they were, say, a buddy cop and it was mostly action, then I would have had to been putting in a lot more things a lot more of the time. So right. I kind of... I kind of gave myself an easy one on that one. Yeah, yes. Yeah, my my buddy cop game was uh, was sort of about the you know like I had the um, like backstory relationship type stuff. It was loosely inspired by um, by the X Files. It was a Project Twilight mm-hmm. game, but um, but yeah, there was a lot of sort of backstory type um, a lot of backstory type stuff. Um, and uh, something else has just occurred to me, so I'm going to take another. Uh, Take another swing at it. Did you ever play in my con game, um, Faith, where you played like Mr. Lincoln or Mr. Nixon or Mr. In, in that one? Um, as soon as you said Faith, I was like, oh, that sounds familiar. Um, I think I did. I don't remember anything about it, but I think I played in that. I won't yeah, give yeah. it away. I'll... Yeah, I was, I was talking to some American friends recently, actually, because that kind of game where everybody is. Uh, it starts off, you start off on a team, and then in the last third, it, it's basically a player versus player who's yes. going to win kind yes. of scenario. Yeah. That, that was such a definitive marker of a con game for me back in the day. Yes. And, and it came up in conversation that it wasn't for these guys. And I was like, is this a, has anyone else had this? Is this a cultural thing? Is this just what we do in New Zealand? We were mm. so affected by like Reservoir Dogs that we were like, wow, yeah. every game's got to be like that. So you do the mission, and then, then you split the cash, and then the process of splitting the cash, you murder everybody. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, for sure. I actually scanned my PDFs of that that game, like all the setup and all that. So what I'll do is actually I'll put that in the show notes, and you can uh, you mm. can run it for your you can run it for your friends. I seem to recall it was it was relatively popular. It was always full, and some <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm remembering this correctly, but I think some guy who was a role player's mother phoned me up and asked me if I'd run it for her children, like for one of her children and their friends for a birthday party or something. I'm like, what? Like, I've got so many, I've got so many questions yet, but all I can really say right now is sure. (laughs) Why are you, but yeah, it was anyway, it was relatively, it was, um, I think it was people quite enjoyed it because it was, you know, that first two thirds friendly style and the last third, it's kind of, and I've got this secret plot point that I want to try and uh-huh. use to um, to mess with the other players. So, see so anyway, I'll put that online, yeah. and you guys can can play. Be okay. I'm going to call that a hit there, and then maybe you maybe you remember who I am now, Hamish. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that was, yeah. That, oh man, yeah. I definitely want to reread that actually. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'll, sure. I'll send it to yeah. you. Um, I'll send it to you, and I'll also put it on the in the show notes. So, um, cool. how often do you role play? And for how long? We've touched on this a little bit with regards to convention, but do you have any regular game that you play? Um, I, uh, well, I spend half of my time in New Zealand and half of my time in, in California, so it makes it a little bit tricky to, um, to have regular games. I have a regular game when I'm back in LA, right. uh, but actually we didn't end up meeting last, for the last two months that I was there, so, because the, because I went away, they started a new game and they didn't end up finishing that game until I was just about left. Right. Um, so I have a couple of groups, um, in LA that I play with and not really here yet, although there's kind of 
Steelers gone out for a couple of one-off games. But I'm not in any campaigns currently. Yeah. Should males play females? And you can take that either way. Like, as in people should be forced to play different things in order to flex their role-playing muscles, or, like, it's really um, something that uh, you should just stick to your own gender? Um, I, I think it's an interesting... Um, it's interesting to try um, I never know how successful I am when I do it. I do it probably, uh, I don't know, 25% of the time when I play characters they end up being female. And it's just, I it's not, there's not nothing in particular that guides me towards taking that choice. It's just sometimes I'm like, oh, you know, I think I'll play a woman this time. Right. Um, so I think that people should be free to play characters of whatever gender, race, whatever they want. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think it's an interesting experiment to try and to try and do that and think about what that means and how you if if it does mean anything for, in terms of like mm. playing or how you try and recreate that experience or right. or yeah yeah and and you've played nicely into my next question, um, which is in, in that case in order to get a feeling in order to get an authentic experience as authentic as a role playing experience can be. Um, Playing a female, do you think then that if you've got a female GM, that's the time to to try it out because you're going to get a better you're going to get a better experience from a female GM playing a female. Um, I have never played a female with a female GM, so I don't know. Um, I think the number of GMs that I've played with that are female are vanishingly small, um, like maybe one or two games ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of that is because I GM so much, so I like I probably only spend twenty five percent of my gaming time playing. Right. Um, but yeah, even so, I don't know. Uh, I I found that the Christchurch gaming team was particularly light on females. Yes, um, yeah, there absolutely. There are many more in Wellington. Yes. Uh, Wellington has a really strong female gaming community. Mm. Uh, LA is probably more male dominated, more like Christchurch in that regard. Um, yes. Yeah. No, but um, but now that's going on my list of things that I want to do. <laughs> mm, yeah, so the next time you get a female GM in front of you, be a, be a female and see uh, see what sort of a range yeah. you can and get on it. And also, on the sort of the flip side of that, I'm always interested, because like you say, like Christchurch is very light on female role players in general, right? And as I said, I'd mm-hmm. never, when I, before coming to, uh, in fact, before playing in a one-shot in... Edmonton, uh, one night I went to the uh, Adventurers Guild, I think it was called. One night I played one game with a female as a GM. That's the only time I've ever played in a game where um, that's run by a run by a female. And yeah, so I've got a similar experience to you. I'm not sure. So next time I'm in a game, I'm going to play play a girl. But the flip side of that is that I've also haven't had a female that's a player apart from in con games. You don't really get a good you don't really get a good opportunity to, you know, do a lot of character development stuff during that, that three-and-a-half-hour, four-hour block. So I'd also be interested to know whether how my females came off to females, like as a GM, like how how believable they were. I mean, obviously, my mother was a female, and, and I'm married, and I have friends that are females, but never I've never had any role-playing friends that are females, if you will. Yeah, it would be tricky in a, in a one-off game to really do that. I think, I, think I would want to be in a longer-term game to try and really make that work and see if, mm. it, see if it works. 
Um, yeah. I should say that Christchurch is better for the ratio now, actually. Oh, sure. Out of the, I ran my game twice, and out of the eight players, three of them were females. That's so, a pretty good ratio, uh, yeah. And, it, and it's one of those things, I think, where the more of a certain group that you get in a group, yes. the, 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 the like snowballs, the more you get. Like, if, if a female comes into a gaming con and sees there's a whole lot of other women who are playing, yes. they're like, okay, this is a place where women can play games, and they're not going to, you know, it's obviously safe for these women. So yeah. yeah, it's kind of like yeah. the uh, needle scratch guy walks into the saloon type scenario, right? Like a, a girl walks into the room, he's like, <laughs> every turn yeah, around right. looks... That's a girl. What's yeah, she yeah. doing here? Is she supposed to be here? I don't really know right. if she is. And if everybody kind of looks at you with a cross between whoa and whoa, then <laughs> it's kind of like, uh, I don't think I want to I want to hang out with Wrong room. Is this <laughs> where the uh, basket weaving is? Or? <laughs> yeah. No? Okay, oh, bye. Down the hall. <laughs> everybody goes, oh. <laughs> so right. close. We almost had a girl. Yeah. And, and a number of, and I'm not sure if you've spoken with females that have uh, uh, that have had this experience, but um, a number of females have uh, in the past expressed how they had negative first experiences with role playing. Like role playing was just something that uh, that boys did, or role playing was for boys and guys rather than for than for girls. Have you spoken with anybody that's had experiences like that, or perhaps even first hand experience? You know, somebody being turned away based upon the their agenda? Um, I can't think. Oh, I certainly haven't. I don't think I've had a conversation um, about it specifically, and I don't think there are any examples from my own experience that I can draw from. And, and I certainly hope that I wasn't part of any groups for which that was uh, something that happened. Um, I don't, yeah, no, no, I don't think I have much to offer to that question. Mm. Yeah, I think that, uh, like you say, at the time, Christchurch was pretty light on, on role-playing girls, and so there was never even a chance to shun one if one came along, which is perhaps... <laughs> yeah. I really wish there was a girl here so that I could shun her. It's been ages, it's been ages yeah. since I've participated in a good shunning. Right, I'm sure that's what we were all thinking. Yeah, that's right, because yeah, my, my, my response to that has, has always been, if, if a girl had shown up, you know, I, you know, I would have been like, wow, like a girl, okay, be extra nice to her, don't try and scare her away because, you know, it'd be nice to have a bit of, a bit of variety. But, but yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty, uh, like I say, in my formative role-playing years, it was, it was extremely, extremely rare to see a girl in uh, role-playing. And I never actually played with, with one or, or had one in a, had one in a game, but, um, yeah, maybe that's just a sign of the times. Um, so do you, or should GMs fudge roles? And, and this, of course, um, we're going to, Ignore for a moment this possibility of um, you know, like, should you actually roll at all? Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to think that if I am um, if I am tempted to fudge rolls, then the system is not doing something that I want it to be doing. Um, yes. That said, I do. I have fudged rolls, and I would fudge them in, in games if I thought it was. If I thought the system wasn't working for me, rather that's what we were playing, for example. So if we're yes. playing D&D and there's some fight that's maybe not the dramatic centre of the, of the of the adventure, um, but somebody's about to die, then maybe I'll I'll try and pull a blow to you know keep the yeah. keep it dramatic. But I certainly yeah I wouldn't. I've, it's it's tricky because the more you do it, like the players can sense it and then 
time I kind of get out the window. Yeah, exactly. So. I mean, you've got to be. There's yeah. got to be a risk of losing something in order for you to, mm-hmm. in order for you to be satisfied with any successes that you get. And it is it is a tricky one. I think that the that the uh, and you're not the first one to. Experience, uh, express a similar sentiment, which is that if you have to fudge roles, then the system is failing you in some way, and perhaps it's a different game that you should be playing. But mm-hmm. you know, another common thread has been that uh, often the best role playing or the most interesting um, things come from dealing with dealing with failure. But if you have a system that doesn't support that, then mm-hmm. you know that's uh, then that's a situation where you may find yourself fudging dice rolls to prevent you know that senseless death or, or whatever it might happen to be. And, and hand in hand yeah. with the, the fudging dice question um, is the you know should all rolls be meaningful? Like in the example that I give, and perhaps you heard it in episode four with with Sean Nittner, was you know like I go to pick a lock and I roll and I fail and nothing happens. Um. Yeah, I think I think they should be because there's a lot of in a lot of uh, older games there's more of a kind of whiff factor, and and that's that's tedious. Like if you're rolling a whole lot of times, and sometimes you're in the situation where okay, I'm going to fall off this cliff. It's just a matter of how many times the GM will let me to roll, let me roll before I'm, he says I'm safe, and then it's just kind of like, well, I'm just rolling for the sake of rolling. And other times it's like, yeah, nothing really is going to happen here. Um, I do like systems myself now that whenever you roll. Even if nothing bad was going to happen before, or nothing was on the line before, something can be on the line, and that's one of the reasons I really like Apocalypse World, right. um, especially for kind of um, for unplanned play. Because if somebody's like, "Well, I check it out. I see what's what's going on here. I, I read the situation, and then you don't have anything planned. You roll the dice, and they roll a miss. Well, it's like, well, something's happening now. That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And that's cool. That's a good way of kind of generating extra extra story. Um, yes. But then in that case, it's the system that is the system is helping you with that. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, that, that's that's intrinsic to that to that system, right? That uh, yeah. that, that aspect of it. And I think that um, anything that promotes additional depth and extra storytelling is something that I'm definitely uh, on board with. I know it's not everybody's mm-hmm. cup of tea. You, know, you get people that enjoy the simulation type games where they don't they want they don't really want that that part of it and uh and i mentioned in episode 14 that um this idea of role-playing snobbery where people are and also sean hayworth and uh his lovely wife's podcast bad wrong fun um Mm -hmm. with the you know just this idea that you know you can be doing it wrong you know you're not role-playing in the in the right way or your game is not as cool as my game that's that sort of thing and i for such a niche um such a niche hobby it just I, I can't I just can't understand how people can afford to be exclusive like do they not realise that there are only 12 role players in your city of you know, 15,000 people and you're going to alienate half of them with one stupid comment it doesn't you know, it just can't, right. make, yeah. it can't make sense of it um, yeah it's, it's weird but anyway so yeah so check out uh, Kristen and Sean's um, Bad Wrong Fun it's um it's a good. It's a good listen. Sean that another thing is on episode one. If something interesting happens to his scrotum. Um, anyway, uh, so I'm uh, uh, unable to resist. <laughs> what a glowing endorsement, eh? A role play yeah. and a role playing podcast where something happens to somebody's scrotum. Uh, so yeah, that should be the byline. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Bad, wrong, fun, where anything can happen to a guest's scrotum. Um, so, 
What's the best and or most inspiring role-playing film or TV show for you? And it doesn't actually have to be about role-playing, but it's just something that you watch and went, man, that's so cool. I want to take yeah. that and I want to put that into a uh, want to put that into a game. Like, say, for example, Reservoir Dogs for a, for a one-shot convention game like Faith. Yeah, I would say um, probably Buffy. Uh, because after I watched Buffy, I was like, wow, that was awesome. How can I make that? How can I do that? All that stuff that Joss Whedon does, how can I do that in a role-playing game? How can I mm. like, get that kind of drama and, and both the, the kind of action and the comedy bits and also the, the kind of emotional bits? How can I get all of that together? Mm. And ever since I watched Buffy and I watched it on DVD, like all seven seasons kind of back-to-back-to-back to back to back over a couple right. of years. Um, right. So I got, like, condensed Buffy. Right. Uh, after that, I started... Yeah, thinking about all of my games that I, um, all of all of the campaign games that I run as kind of episodic arcs and how how story arcs might work and all that kind of thing. So that mm. would, that would certainly be the right. most inspirational, both kind of structurally and I like the subject material as right, well. Right, sure. Yeah, and you may enjoy episode eleven there with uh, Tim Brannan, who wrote the uh, the spell, you know, the Willow, um, and uh, what's the what's her compatriot's name? Um, uh, Willow and her, what's the other the other witch in that show? I'm trying to remember. Uh, oh, what, uh, I played the actress's name is Amber Benson, but I can't remember the name of the, yeah. the character that she played. But anyway, those guys, the Tim uh, Tim Brown in episode eleven actually uh, wrote that magic book, the witch's magic book for um, oh, no. for, the, for the Buffy game. So you might want to check that out. Episode uh, check that episode eleven. So right. Amber Benson is one of my uh, famous people sightings, actually from LA. Is that right? Yeah, yeah <laughs> you've got a little list, have you? Like you've got to uh, kind of a little mental list, yeah. Because it's one of those things. You live in LA, and everybody. Uh, one of the first things they say is like, "Oh, have you seen anyone famous?" And you, so you, you kind of keep track. Right, I see. Okay, I'm. Uh, yeah, I, I don't have anybody. For, oh, I think uh, yeah, the closest uh, star sighting I have. I think is oh no two star sightings both in the space of a, a very short time. One was uh, I saw Vince Vaughn in the um, in the casino, the Mandalay Bay, like walked about five feet away from me. But the only thing I know about Vince Vaughn is oh no I know two things. One he's got a weird thumb, but two um, but two he's a sorry Vince if you're listening. Um, and, but two is that he doesn't like people going up and talking to him. Um, just because he's famous, so I just let him in his six foot four or six foot five, however tall he is, frame sort of like flounce past me. Um, he was in his Vince Vaughn thin phase at the time. Um, so, and the other, the other, I'm sure it was ironic, but the other um, star sighting I have is I saw Jason Acuna, aka Wee Man from um, mm-hmm. from Jackass, going on one of the boats into the It's a Small World ride. <laughs> I've got a picture of that, which I which I'll also put up with the uh, in the show notes. But yeah, it was uh, it was brilliant. He had a huge grin on his face. I have to assume that he was being ironic. But yeah, it was uh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was it was brilliant. Yeah, that made my that made my holiday last year. Um, so, uh, who's your favourite villain and why? Oh, favourite villain. Um, ooh, uh, hmm. well, um. It's hard to go past Darth Vader just for the badass, cool, and nostalgia and the James Earl Jones voice. It's um, interesting you should say Darth Vader because I anticipated that being a lot of people's favourite, but now we're at episode uh-huh. 24 and you're the first person that said Darth Vader. 
in any case, I'll speak by my gun. Darth Vader then. Um, I did just watch the 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 Star Wars movies again recently. The um, for the first time, the not the Blu-ray changes that Lucas made, the the DVD release changes that he made, which I hadn't previously seen. They weren't as bad as I thought, but still. Except for uh, except for Greedo shoots first, right? Or is that the one where they shoot simultaneously? Like was... I, I don't know, but yeah, there's only one person that shoots in that scene, Lucas. It's <laughs> <laughs> You know, a lot of the stuff that people complain about, about George Lucas tinkering with the story and putting in the... Like, I don't care about any of that stuff. I don't care about any of it. But it probably goes a little bit to sort of how my my feelings about um, what sort of stories I enjoy have changed over the years. Because mm-hmm. he can put any number of Jar Jar Binkses in, in the story or Ewoks or whatever it is. I don't care. But Han, or Han is people from New Zealand call, it, call him, um, has to shoot first. He has to because that's who he is. Right, that's his character, yeah. That's that's the change for me that is, I'm, I'm the same. That's the change that, that really gets me. Anything else is just like, well, whatever. You made some movies and they were really good, so stop tinkering with them. Make another good movie. Come on. You haven't made one since, like, 1985. <laughs> yeah. I did see a good um, blog post recently from film critic Hulk talking about how episode one could have been a good movie and I was like, wow, that could have been really good. I wish you'd, I wish you'd done that. Yeah. <laughs> just rearranging the plot, same stuff, but just with some things that made a bit more sense to have a bit more drama. Like, yeah, well, yeah, appar- yeah, apparently um, Topher Grace made a single version of all of the first uh, three, well, like the second three, but, you know, like episode one, two, and three. Um, mm-hmm. and he, he cut it all together. And apparently it's very good. I mean, obviously, I'm never going to get a chance to see it. But apparently it made the whole thing make sense. But what did you see about this episode one thing? Uh, it was mainly the, the way that they'd... Um, he suggested that they... He suggested that different characters, and I can't remember exactly how it went, uh, different characters split up differently. So there ended up being some romantic tension um, over Padme between um, Anakin and uh, Qui-Gon, okay. I think. Yeah. Or, yeah, or Kenobi. Kenobi. Uh, yeah. Well, Kenobi is a better age, I suppose, I'm going to guess. Yeah, it's yeah, it would have been, yeah, Ewan McGregor's character is Kenobi, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and it just, yeah, there was just, and there was a few tinkering things with it, and I was like, that that would have been quite good, I would like to see that. Yeah, yeah, and so anyway, let's get back to Darth Vader, like, why do you like Darth Vader? Uh-huh. I mean, you said the I sheer badassery of him, or badassery, yeah, as think... we would say. Yeah, I think it's just, um, it's, it's that. It's like half nostalgia. Um, I don't know, he's kind of been co-opted into, into pop culture, so you see him in a bunch of different places, much like the Hulk, actually. Um, so I know there's a, there's a good uh, mini, mini-series, I guess, somebody made uh, for YouTube with Darth Vader, where he was working at a, at, a, at a supermarket. It was like Darth Vader Mall, well, supermarket trolley boy or something and it was kind of cool. And just, like, you can you can take that character, which is relatively easy to costume for because Darth Vader Master of Diamond doesn't. Yes. And you can kind of put it in any situation and get a lot of other kind of either comedy or dramatic gold or right. from it as well. Yes. Um, but it, I, I think it's just the iconic iconic nature of the character, really. Um, right. Because yeah. on, uh, on previous episodes, we've uh, talked about this idea of there's this, like, four 
basic villains. This is just my construct. People might want to have more or fewer or, or something else altogether. But the four that I identified was, you know, you've got your force of nature, your, um, you've got the great old ones from Cthulhu and um, like the Joker or something like that, who their goals are completely foreign to you. You're completely incapable of sympathizing or empathizing or even, you know, like uh, going along with in any way their goals, but also the way they go about achieving it is completely um, completely alien to you as well. So it's sort of like a, a force of nature. There is no way to reason with it or anything like It's like the Terminator, you know, like it actually will not, absolutely will not stop until you are dead type thing. You can't, but it doesn't care either. It wants to achieve its mission, but it's not, it doesn't, it's got no emotional investment in achieving these things. So yeah. the great old ones or, you know, or the Terminator or... Um, aliens. Or the Joker or the aliens, right, exactly. They just want to, they just want to procreate, right? Um, so, so that's type one. And then type two is like Hannibal Lecter, who um, you are completely incapable of um, empathizing with or sharing the goals that he has. You can't obviously go along with any of the ways that he achieves this, but he has certain characteristics which you'd like to, you'd like to be able to see in yourself, things you'd like to emulate, things that you can admire. So he's very, very polite in certain circumstances. He's devilishly clever. You know, he's insightful. He's, you know, he's this and he's that. You know, you might argue that some of it is purely from a, a sadistic standpoint, but if you follow the books along, uh, then, you know, like it's obvious that he's got a thing for Clarice Starling. So that kind of puts in context some of his previous exchanges with Clarice, and you can't just put it down purely as somebody messing with somebody else's head. You know, it's just somebody who does actually, you know, somebody who does actually enjoy their, their company. So that's the, that's the second that's the second type. Um, the third type is somebody like Hans Gruber, who you can 100% agree with their goals. You know, you um, you wouldn't mind having all that money yourself. You can't agree with any of the ways that you go about it goes about achieving it, or very few of them, but you could definitely 100% empathize with his goal. And the fourth type is, you know, the Lex Luthor Superman version, who, um, you know, the only reason that Lex Luthor is the bad guy is because the story is told through Superman's eyes. So, which of those four would you think that Darth Vader would uh, would fit into? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Um, There's no requirement for you for him to fit into any of them, of course, because, like I say, it's that's my own personal construct. Yeah. You may think that he's he's something other than those uh, than those four. Yeah, I would say probably maybe the the last one. Right. Um, I'm not sure because I, I I keep thinking about like the fact that he gets redeemed at the end. Yes, it does make that, things muddier for sure. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Where there's not really any. Well, I guess only certain of your four types could be redeemed. Like there's no way of force. There's nothing for a force of nature to redeem for, and, and someone right. like Hannibal Lecter is kind of like too far gone. Yes. To be. Yes. To be redeemed. So I guess you'd have to uh, the last two. Probably the last mm. one. Yeah, he's yeah. yeah this, uh, his ultimate goal, I guess, is, and that's the thing about Darth Vader. Like, I agree that he is, um, you know, like he is the bad guy incarnate. But even thinking about it now, I can't understand what his goal is. Like, what is Darth Vader's goal? He wants to crush the rebellion. Well, not really. Like, I mean, that's kind of what the Emperor wants him to do. But what does Darth Vader actually want? Because that's the thing yeah. that I always struggle with. Like, Darth Vader's a bad guy. There's no question he's a bad guy. And then, oh, 
will always yeah. be associated with a bad guy. But what does Darth Vader actually want? And that's why I struggle with, with pigeonholing him, because I can't think what it is about his character that is compelling. I mean, he's got an arc, kind right. of, but what is it about him other than he's just, you know, that bad guy? And that's also, I think, why I was, my initial reluctance, like, to, to pick Darth Vader, because in some ways I don't really consider him a villain, no more a villain than someone like, I don't know, Conan the Barbarian kills a lot of people. Yeah, he's the sure. hero because he's the hero of the story. Yes. Um, in the same way, I guess Darth Vader kills a lot of people, but he's the villain because he's the villain of the story. And I don't know if there's there's probably something obvious that I'm missing that somebody better versed in Star Wars lore or even just film criticism would would. Um, yeah, well, I don't get a lot of hate mail, so let's let's uh, let's really say some crazy stuff here. Yeah, because I can't, I don't even know, I don't even know why the Empire are the bad guys. I mean, obviously, in order to be able to get these plans back for the Death Star, blowing up Alderaan was was an act of evil by Moff Tarkin, right? But aside from that, what else? What else is it that they do that's evil? Because when they go to whatever the ridiculous place where they've got the Gungans are. And those underwater people in, in um, episode one, um, whatever that, yeah. Naboo, is it Naboo? Naboo, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's no different to any of the Imperial Conquest type stuff that, you know, like Western right. civilization is based upon. So, I mean, you can't point your finger at them and go, that's evil, because if that's the case, then, you know, everything that that um, has been achieved by the, the West is, is quote-unquote evil. So you can't really... So, like I said, that, that whole business with Alderaan is the only sort of bit mm-hmm. that I can put, point my finger at. I mean, I guess you'd say yep. burning um, Aunt Veru and Aunt Uncle Owen is, is part of it, but did they just set fire to them? Did they, did they come out firing in order to protect, you know, where Luke had gone? Or, well, we don't really even know what that was, so I'm sort of I'm struggling with, uh, struggling with that. But, yeah, like, what's, what does the Empire do that's, that's bad? All right, well, is, if you is, want your hate mail, here we go. I think that the reason the Empire is bad is because they stand for everything that late 1970s America doesn't. Like, they're the ones who are crushing individualism, and Americans are big on individualism. Right. Um, And all that kind of self-reliance, and they're the ones who are... They're kind of like an an allegory for communism, like, I think. Yeah. Um, And the kind of political climate of the time, and they're just kind of uh, dressed up. Right, yes. Yeah, I can see the people emphasize with. I can I can see where you're going with that for sure, um, but yeah, because when I think about them at the end, like they're called the Empire, and the Empire mm-hmm. for me will always be in reality is the Roman Empire, and was the Roman Empire evil? Because all of the stuff that the Empire does, Star Wars Empire, is exactly the same stuff that the Roman Empire was doing, right? Mm-hmm. It's so yeah, it's or any other empire for that matter. Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I'm yeah. as well-versed in the classics as you are, and I'd be really disappointed in you if I were. But, um, but, the, <laughs> but, but the, um, the, the, you know, like that, that's just something that seems to me to go hand-in-hand hand with, you know, civilization. So I'm, that, that's kind of why I struggle with Darth Vader, because I'm not sure what evil stuff he, he actually mm-hmm. – yeah, I mean, he's obviously – He's obviously very driven in what he does, and he like crushes that guy's throat, for letting guys the the bad guys get away. So he's ruthless, I suppose. But yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Yes, yeah, so no, it's a, I mean, the Empire is, is aptly named as the Empire because it's such a good model for just and it's just straight out imperialism. Yes. And yeah, yeah. You study any empire around the world in history, and you will find that you can probably map 
the, mm. the emperor's empire onto whatever empire that is quite well. Yes. Yeah, it's um, yeah. I don't think we're going to get to the bottom of that this evening, but um, but yeah, it's uh, <laughs> but yeah. So so yeah, Darth Vader, interesting choice. But yeah, I'm still so hopefully uh, somebody can uh, who, who's really passionate about Darth Vader can tell me some of the reasons why uh, you know why Darth Vader is uh, what Darth Vader actually wants because I can't. I just yeah, you because know, that redemption yeah. makes it a bit difficult at the end because it's it's obvious what he wants in the end. He wants to just be a regular person, but he has to not be a regular person to start with in order to, to want to be a regular person again, right? Like he's, it's, yeah, I can't, it's yeah, kind of like that idea. There can't be any, there's no appreciation for peace if there is no war, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, it's like one of those kind of, uh, those, there's, there's a bunch of movies that do this, and I can't think of the one most recently that I, that made me think of this, but where the bad guy just does a lot of really bad stuff so that you know that they're bad. Mm. And if you're like, okay, well, he just ordered those children to be shot. Well, he's bad. Yeah. Oh, uh, uh, ooh, 13 Assassins. Have you seen, seen 13 Assassins? I, I haven't, it's no. A, it's a, a horror movie that came out a couple of years ago. Right. And, yeah, the, there's just a whole lot of reinforcement at the start that the guy that the 13 Assassins or the heroes are going to kill is really bad so that you don't feel bad when they kill him. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the bad guy gets to um, the end. They, yeah, they totally you. go over the top to reinforce the, the badness of him. Right. Um, and then... And, Look how bad I am. <laughs> so, if you could become a character in a role-playing game, what would it be? That doesn't mean like you can play whatever game you like right now, and you can be a guy in it. I mean, like suddenly you become a character in a role-playing game. What role-playing game would it be, and what type of character would you be? Or what specific uh, character would you be? Yeah, um, I think. Types of role playing games that I tend to like tend to be quite action packed, and I am naturally too risk averse to ever want to be a character in one of those. Right. Um, so maybe, um, oh, oh, probably, probably something in in like a near moderately far future sci fi game. Maybe like in a oh, hmm, maybe in a transhuman kind of sci fi game. That would kind of that would, could be quite cool. Or else you want to be like Max Headroom, 20 minutes in the future? Um, yeah, uh, I, don't, I haven't seen Max Headroom, actually. There's a glaring gap in my, my movie, uh, movie watching credentials. Um, uh, I was thinking more like, uh, more like, um, oh, more like something from Transhuman Space, if you've played that. I haven't known. Fantastic. Kind of, uh, GURPS supplement. Right. Um, flash game, uh, well, the idea is that uh, at a certain point, theoretically, human uh, the uh, computer technology will be sufficiently advanced that we can like scan a human mind and then upload it into a computer. All right. So then you could you exist online, as it were, and be mm. beamed into certain bodies and do lots of different things. Right. You said that's like, yeah, 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 kind of yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that would that would be kind of cool because then it would be kind of like um, role playing as life. Right. Okay. Well, there you go. So, do you have any dice superstitions? Um, not really. 
Um, after listening to one of your previous podcasts, actually, I noticed that at Buckets I started to ask people before I just picked up their dice and rolled them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you mind if um, I... <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not superstitious really about anything. Um, I, I've certainly noticed that I think well, Americans are quite superstitious about things, particularly about sports, but I don't, I don't really... Um, I watch a lot of sport, but I'm not really superstitious about it, and same with dice. Right, because I was going to actually ask you that, because... I don't have any dice superstitions, as I'm well I'm on the record for. Um, Farrell said that he's got some dice superstitions, but New Zealand is a very sort of utilitarian mm-hmm. society. And I wonder if dice superstitions are very rare in New Zealand, because like you say, in general, New Zealanders are not superstitious people, like in, mm-hmm. in general. I mean, obviously there are plenty of exceptions to the rule, but, but American um, role players seem to have more dice superstitions than we do. Do you have any... Um, yeah, I think there is kind of a, a pretty, a, a more pronounced strain of like kind of either religious feeling or that sort of ignorance, like uh, the idea that there is something out there that's bigger than us. That seems to be more of a of a big deal in America. Um, I certainly know way more American people who are religious than I do New Zealanders. Um, right, and I think that probably has something to do with that, yeah. I don't know very many people here who have... I've never really encountered dice superstition here very much. Um, I know lots of people who order their dice in a certain way, but that's more of a factor of kind of like OCD-ness. Than, yes, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, lining them up in a particular way. That's just people appealing to yeah. people's sense of order. But, yeah, this this <laughs> idea that there is actually something bigger than us that could actually be having an effect on the, uh, on the dice is... Uh, mm-hmm. Is yeah, as, as a, like, I share the same experience as you, and I haven't really encountered it, but apparently uh, I have. I just I just didn't know it at the time. So, mm-hmm. what's your role playing elevator pitch, including your go to example? So, you know, somebody says, "Hey Hamish, what are you doing tonight?" And you say, "I'm going role playing," and they say, "Role playing? What's that?" And you say, "Yeah, um, I'm ashamed to say that I don't really have one, and I really should should work on that." Um, because I, I really like, I've heard, uh, I, I listened to your interview with Sean, and he, uh, I'd heard I'd heard that story of his before, I think, or at least a similar one where he just started, like, showing people how it was done and center-related, and, and pretty soon they're role-playing. It's like, oh, that's really, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've never really had the chance to to do that, I guess, recently. Um, I obviously needed to hang out with uh, more non-role-players and try and evangelize more. Right, uh, right. Yeah. I usually just kind of, I mean, I, I'd go for the old kind of like, it's kind of like a cross between uh, theater sports and uh, watching your favorite TV show or something like that. And, right. And then they yeah, just leave that, it with that? that <laughs> yeah, that, if that rubbish description doesn't work, and it was like, it's like D&D. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so I have, I have no good answers to that question, I'm afraid, but I'm, I was inspired by some of your, uh, your previous uh Interlocutors to um to to try and yeah do some of their ideas if I yeah next time right. I get the chance. Subsequent to recording a number of interviews, I've, I've sort of cycled through various different ones to sort of test out if any one of them anyone's fit me uh, fit me better than uh, than any of the others. But I'll save up my answer to that for another time. I think I've I think I've answered most of the questions on here, but there are a few that I'm holding in reserve for special occasion. <laughs> so putting all your ideas together, then uh, totaling one hundred. Uh, system plus GM plus players. Ah, yeah, I think I... 
they're, oh, they're also important. Um, I, I think I'd have to go uh, just with an even split. Um, although, well, hmm, maybe I could... Uh, no, even split, even split. Because um, they're all important. I was, I was thinking maybe system is less important, but I don't think that's the case. Um, because system is kind of like the framework that everything else rests on, and then the GM and players are both contributing lots of creativity, and more probably, well, hopefully, um, more more creativity from the players, and then the GM kind of has to like lay an overlaying structure on it. So it's, it really is a, a kind of interwoven web of. Uh, Delicious gaming, awesome when it comes off. Like the whole, all three working in, in harmony really can make great games. Ladies and gentlemen, my super good friend, my buddy, <laughs> my soulmate, <laughs> Hamish Cameron. I love you, man. <laughs> That's it for episode 25 of Penny Red. For any questions or comments arising from the show, Daniel at HazardGaming.com. As always, signed and numbered copies of Victoria are available from hazardgaming.com. Just click Buy Victoria and follow the links there. You can also get it as a PDF through RPG Now or drivethroughrpg.com. But if you go to hazardgaming.com and go to the Buy Victoria link and then scroll all the way down on the right-hand side, just across from the field where you put in your address to receive your PDF, you'll find a secret link. And if you follow the secret link, you'll go to a page where, for Penny Red listeners, you can get the PDF for just $6.99 as opposed to $9.99. There are also various other resources there which you can pay what you like for. In any case, next week's guest is Vincent Baker from Lumpley Games, creator of Dogs in the Vineyard, Apocalypse World, and a slew of other indie game favourites. So until then... Keep talking the walk. Thank you.